Today on Government Matters, keeping federal government buildings safe from coronavirus. The head of the Public Building Service tells you how his team is doing it. Securing the network from the bad guys. The Interior Department's Chief Information Security Officer details the strategy. And improving living conditions for service members and their families. The Defense Department needs more data. The Government Accountability Office tells you why. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The new stimulus package includes $300 million for the General Services Administration. A chunk of that money will go toward a deep spring cleaning of federal buildings organized by the Public Building Service. Dan Matthews is Commissioner of PBS at the General Services Administration. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on. How is the coronavirus affecting the way that you're doing your work at PBS, Dan? Thank you, Francis, and thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Well, at PBS, we have about 8,000 facilities all across the country. Uh, those include the 50 United States and our territories. And we are focused on keeping the mission essential facilities open so federal agencies can respond to this national emergency and provide the services that the American public need on a regular ongoing basis. Uh, we're obviously using a lot of telework here at GSA, but we're also, we have a presence in facilities, and so we're making sure that our people are safe and by following CDC's social distancing guidelines and ensuring that our people are not doubling up the same location at the same time. Is every is determining which facilities are mission essential as easy as it sounds? I imagine there's a cohort of categories of buildings that are obviously mission essential. I imagine there are others that turn out to be mission essential but don't appear to be on first blush. Is that a fair read? Yes, it is. Absolutely. And one of the things that you notice, we follow the lead of our tenants. So if our tenants, meaning the federal agencies that occupy our facilities, have a, a need to stay open, there can be a variety of reasons. We have pretty much every federal agency in our buildings, um, and including the CDC, the National Institute of Health, uh, FEMA, uh, all sorts of different agencies that have an obvious need to be in there. But there are other agencies as well, land ports of entry, um, uh, border stations, various DHS and FBI facilities as well that we keep open. What is the role of PBS as the landlord in these buildings, as the property manager, and what is the role of the agencies as the tenants, the occupants, for cleaning and maintaining these buildings so that they're safe for the people that do have to go to work every day? So it's a little bit, it depends on the facility. So you, I'm sure you could imagine some facilities are extremely high security, and those may be what we call delegated facilities. So the tenant agency uh, would actually be responsible for uh, doing those things on their own. But the vast majority of our facilities, even some of the extremely high security ones, uh, we keep that direct responsibility. We contract with, literally we have 30,000 contractors uh, working for PBS alone on construction sites, but also vendors that clean buildings on a regular basis. I'm seeing reports all over the news in, in a variety of different sources about things that involve what the other what other media sources report as just the federal government broadly doing this or that or the other thing. I imagine a lot of that is happening through the public building service. Tell me some success stories. Tell me some things that you're proud of of what PBS is doing in this response, Dan. Well, I can give you one 
One example that you've probably heard about and some of your viewers have heard about because it's been in the news. But in our Region 10, which is in the Pacific Northwest, on Friday afternoon, we received a, a mission assignment, a call from FEMA uh, on behalf of the state government and local government uh, where they had a need to acquire a facility extremely quickly to stand up an emergency medical. Quickly uh, convened with the Army Corps of Engineers and our regional folks worked around the clock over the weekend. In less than 48 hours, uh, they had signed a lease with Century Link, which is the sports stadium in Seattle where the Seattle Seahawks play. And the Army is on site uh, building that uh, emergency medical facility. And if they aren't accepting patients by today, they will be in the extremely near future. One of the that was all done um, with, with telework, frankly. One of the things that I know agencies across government are trying to do is simultaneously with responding to the pandemic, learn lessons that will apply after the pandemic is gone. Are there lessons like that that you're paying attention to, things that you're tracking at PBS for after this pandemic is over? Yes, uh, great question. A couple things on that. The, the obvious one, the fact that GSA made a significant investment in technology and mobility and essentially cutting our tie to paper. We transformed our business processes, make them digital business processes. That has created a, mo a mobile workforce for GSA. Uh, we, can, we can pick up and, and change locations or work from home or work from a job site. And that investment that was made uh, over several years ago is really paying off today with our ability to keep the work going, keep our facilities open, to keep contracting, um, to do what we need to do for the federal government so they are able to respond to this national emergency. That's by far been the I think, most significant um, uh, lesson learned. That was a smart investment. I'm really glad my predecessors did that uh, because we are benefiting as a result. Dan Matthews of the Public Building Service at GSA, thanks very much for taking time in the middle of all this to talk about your work. Appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. Glad to be here. Up next, securing the network at the Interior Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, some new tech and a new security strategy. The agency's Chief Information Security Officer is next. You're watching ABC7. The Department of Interior has its first Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract award. It's issued a task order for managed network services and managed access services that could be worth up to $1.6 billion. Jack Donnelly is Chief Information Security Officer and Director of Information Assurance at the Interior Department. Jack, thanks for coming on the program. What do you think the big story is behind this award? Transition to EIS, big priority for the General Services Administration and for the Office of Management and Budget. Well, I think the big story is how do you uh, plan for a transition? Uh, the EIS contract has been in waiting uh, for the department for, for a long period of time. Uh, we waited for the transition. We planned for the transition. So now it's all about how do you get current services migrated to new, new services, new vendors accordingly. Mm -hmm. And uh, we planned conservatively to make that happen over the course of time. So. We look forward to the uh, uh, change in uh, migration and uh, 
we hope that uh, it won't disrupt services of any kind, but uh, since we uh, did some pretty good planning, I expect those transitions to be smooth. And you mentioned that this, I think we've, I've, I've done a disservice on this program in talking about this transition because I've focused on the contract vehicle mm -hmm. and not so much, as you say, on the transition of the services themselves. You're moving from one vendor to another. A lot of agencies will be doing that. What's that transition planning look like compared to the planning of the contract transition? Okay, from a department's perspective, that's been years in the making. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can speak to it from a cybersecurity perspective. Uh, you know, this is a change in the core uh, vendor, and it's the wide area network, it's all the infrastructure that sits there, it's the additional services that are on top of it. From a cybersecurity perspective, this means uh, new infrastructure, uh, new services, and new services that reflect some of the cybersecurity changes that are happening quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. The initial planning phases were geared towards uh, as, uh, baselining current services and being able to define to uh, the new vendor what we needed and then being able to express in specific requirements and terms what we needed in the future. So uh, the first requirements were focused on these are our identified services. The next step was this is what we would like transition to take, take a look and um, and what we like to have the results focus on and then it's all about what are we going to transition to mm -hmm. and what's our future organization going to be from a cybersecurity perspective and from that perspective this is a long-term contract the cyber landscape and the needs of the interior department i imagine will change potentially dramatically over the term of this contract what kinds of on-ramps or off-ramps are you trying to build in either to the way that you're doing this transition or through the contract vehicle itself to be able to continue to meet the needs that the department has through this long-term deal. Yeah, the, the products and services offered by that contractor isn't the important point. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the cybersecurity portfolio. Uh, we manage our investments accordingly. We manage the capabilities. With the sudden changes within cybersecurity, for example, I've been in a number of organizations and how you implement cybersecurity and cybersecurity operations has changed from not uh, decades. Yes. It's every couple of years, every three years, um, there's new uh, malicious threats that are out there, new capabilities that vendors are offering. So the idea is to manage that portfolio, which means uh, establishing current uh, capabilities, see the value of that uh, investment pay off, and then retire those capabilities accordingly. In the meantime, investigating new capabilities to put within the portfolio and manage that uh, change over the course of time. Uh, the security apparatus within Interior uh, has changed drastically within the last 10 years, and part of it is, is you see the new uh, services in social media, uh, consumer products and electronics that are out there. That landscape from a cyber perspective has changed immensely, and even when we try to predict the future and, and identify trends, uh, that prediction doesn't go uh, beyond three years. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, we try to stick to one-year, three-year visions, and then we make some bets and, uh, and try to identify some opportunities within the five-year time period. But um, we're cautiously, uh, uh, we tend to be not to uh, be too predictive in the five-year time frame. I think that makes a lot of sense because if we go back five years, five years ago nobody was talking in, in the federal government space about zero trust. Very few people, I would say, five years ago were talking about continuous diagnostics and, and mitigation. Mm -hmm. So building those kinds of, uh, of abilities into your response vector at some point in the future strikes me as tremendously important. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the uh, CDM program. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, Homeland Security's program in partnership with the departments and agencies. Uh, you see how that has evolved over the course of years. Initially, it's been a patch management uh, system where what are the vulnerabilities, what are the assets that are out there, how are you managing to those risks? But then they're starting to realize that that's not enough mm -hmm. information. It's, it's a health issue from a cybersecurity perspective. What other things and information do you need and manage to? And what they figured is, is, is this. Over the course of time, it's clear that the transitioning of technology is important and those capabilities that are being fielded by the departments and, uh, departments and agencies are also changing. So our implementation of CDM now is uh, phase one. There is additional phases planned, and that's a partnership between Homeland Security and the departments and agencies, and uh, Interior is one of those departments. We have less than a minute left, Jack. What, how will you look back on this transition, both capabilities and the contract itself, in a year, two years, or five years, and say, this worked the way we wanted it to, or maybe we fell short in a particular area. How will you measure success? Uh, we have performance metrics, uh, and we have capability goals. Uh, we put those into the uh, contract. We also have uh, made sure that the vendors understand our requirements. So there is a one-year strategy, a three-year strategy, uh, and a five-year strategy at Interior from a cybersecurity perspective. They have uh, high-level uh, requirements that have been documented, and if you take a look at it further down in terms of concept of operations and standard operating procedures, those requirements are there for the vendor to turn around and implement. And how successful we are is whether we meet those requirements in the strategy and those various documents and governance uh, um, requirements that are provided. Jack Donnelly, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Up next, improving oversight for military housing. Straight ahead on Government Matters, better data leads to better living for service members. You're watching ABC7. The military services have increased oversight of privatized housing, but service members and their families are still reporting problems with mold and pests. The Defense Department needs more data and needs to manage it better to improve life for service members and their families. According to the Government Accountability Office, Elizabeth Field is Director for Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at GAO. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This has been a high-profile issue for a long time. What did you look at specifically this time around? So this time around, we wanted to get into how the Department of Defense was conducting oversight of the condition of the homes. As you mentioned, there have been a number of concerns raised by service members and their families about whether they were living in safe, clean homes, concerns about things like mold and pest infestation. And so whereas our, our past reports have looked at things like how these projects are structured financially, this time we wanted to really get a sense of, of the condition of the homes. The vehicle for doing this work was a mandate in the FY19 Defense Appropriations Act. So there are four big bullets uh, in the work that you have done on this, Elizabeth, and I want to talk about each one of them in turn. The first one you write, military departments conduct some oversight of the physical condition of housing but some efforts have been limited in scope. How have, they been, how have they been limited, and how would you like to see that scope expanded? 
So we visited 14, excuse me, we visited 10 different installations throughout the country to get a sense of how the military housing offices were doing on the ground in terms of performing their oversight duties. And what we found is that the oversight varied and, as you note, in some cases was limited. So for example, uh, one of the ways in which military housing offices can perform oversight of the companies that own and manage these homes is to pull work order data and see what it shows them about timeliness of response, uh, the quality of the work potentially that has been done. And at Camp Pendleton, for example, we found that the military housing office was only pulling 3% of work order data on a monthly basis, which is not, not a lot. Um, now, other installation military housing offices were pulling more. Similarly, another way in which the military housing offices can perform oversight is to perform change of occupancy maintenance uh, inspections. So when a tenant leaves a unit uh, before a new tenant comes in, the military housing office can go in and see how in the maintenance has been performed. Uh, in some cases, they were doing that in 100% of the change of, of maintenance uh, inspection uh, points in time. In others, they were doing only 10 to 20 percent. So we wanted to see not only greater oversight, but also more systematic oversight. In the cases of these uh, various thresholds of oversight that you examined, did you find that there are certain place, uh, certain amounts where 3 percent is obviously not enough, but maybe 15 percent is or 25 percent is or whatever? Or is it more art than science in those areas, Elizabeth? Well, we did not want to be too prescriptive in our recommendations and set a specific threshold that really is up to the military departments to do, the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. Um, but we do have recommendations in our final report to uh, have those military departments set out guidance for strengthening oversight um, because there needs clearly to be more uh, uniformity in terms of expectations that the military departments have of their military housing officials on the ground. Second item is the military departments use performance metrics to monitor private partners, but the metrics don't provide meaningful information on the condition of the housing. What would provide better information on the condition of the housing, Elizabeth? Sure. So to, just to give you a few examples of the type of metrics that the military departments were using to, to hold uh, these companies accountable and provide them performance incentive fees, they were using things like occupancy rates. So if the uh, project has reaches a certain threshold for occupancy, then the company would get a performance incentive fee. Well, as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, service members and their families live in privatized housing and, and live on base in many cases for reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of their home. Access to services would be one. So what we recommend is that the military departments uh, negotiate with the partners to come up with uh, metrics that would be uh, more closely tied to the condition of the housing. For example, meaningful information about the extent to which the residents feel satisfied that their problems have been resolved adequately and in a timely manner. The last two items that you uh, wrote about refer to the reliability of data, the collection of it inside the Department of Defense and the provision of that data to Congress so that Congress gets a, a fair picture of what's happening in privatized housing. What are the, what are the, where's the room for improvement in both of those areas, Elizabeth? Well, there's a lot of room for improvement, unfortunately. So, so first, in the in the case of the the satisfaction survey, DOD is required to report annually to Congress about the health of the privatized housing uh, program, and as part of that, to report on on customer satisfaction. How 
confident the service members feel about the adequacy and, and safety and cleanliness of their housing. Now, in the FY17 report to Congress, DOD stated that uh, service members and their families um, at an 87 percent uh, level would, would recommend privatized housing. What we found when we looked at that survey is that the question that had actually been asked of service members and their families was not, would you recommend privatized housing? But to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statement? I would recommend my community to others, which I think you and your viewers would agree is a very different question. Aside from that, we also found problems with how they were calculating the data. So for example, the Air Force decided that if uh, residents responded to the survey by saying they neither agreed nor disagreed that they would recommend their community to others. They counted it as a yes. And that can have, as, as you can imagine, a, a huge impact to skew the data. So we recommend in our report that the department set up some procedures for more clearly um, vetting the data, calculating it accurately, and then reporting it more transparently to Congress. Uh, and then the, the last area had to do with the work order data. We collected over 8 million work order records from all 14 of the companies that manage uh, the privatized housing program. We found data anomalies in all of the data that we reviewed. Uh, and the reason that this is important is that the Department of Defense has told us that they want to use the work order data to provide better oversight of the companies. If they want to do that, they need to set some minimum uh, data requirements and they need to have a way to validate the data. So we have two recommendations in our report to do that. Elizabeth Field, thanks very much as always for keeping an eye on this issue and uh, keeping us updated. I appreciate your time. Happy to do it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.